Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org by clicking the donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. We got kind of a loose topic here. I'm kind of curious on where things go, but uh, I think what we're going to explore is the core teachings of the Buddha. And if you go to any Buddhist meditation center, these core teachings of the Buddha are the Four Noble Truths. And the, the Four Noble Truths are there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is an end of suffering, and there's a path to follow which ends suffering. Suffering, 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 so much suffering. But what does this mean? So hopefully we'll come to some sense of understanding and come to an intimate way of knowing suffering. Uh, and so that's what our intention is tonight. Andrew will cover these four truths in a very practical way and, and hopefully show you what we're presented with in this sense of suffering. And then I'll present to you a meditation practice so we can become intimate with our suffering. <laughs> Y'all ready for it? Yeah. And so, yeah, these four truths. Andrew, tell me something about them. What's up, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just curious if anyone had a hard day today. Did anyone have a hard day today? Five, six, seven people. Including those people, did anyone have a hard day this week? And including those people, did anyone have a hard day this year? <laughs> so it seems to be if you spread the time out far enough, we all have had a hard time at some point in time. And what I really trusted about the Buddhist teaching when I first came into this community was that the, what the person was telling me on the stage about the Buddha and his life and his teaching was that the first thing that the Buddha ever taught was that kind of a question of have you noticed how hard it can be sometimes to be human? And this is really the first noble truth. It's the first thing the Buddha ever taught. There's this sutta. It's like the supercalifragilistic expialidocious of uh, Buddhist suttas. It's called the Dhammachaka Papatalana Sutta, which is one word. And it means setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. And the first teaching that the Buddha gives is actually on the middle path. And then after he teaches on the middle path, the second teaching he gives are the Four Noble Truths. And in the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is, have you noticed that at times everybody has a hard time some of the time? 
And when I heard that, when I first came to this community, I was kind of uh, perplexed and also somewhat relieved because I was coming here not because I was interested in becoming a meditator when I was a young kid. I thought this was what the hippies did, and I didn't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> but it had gotten to the point where uh, I knew some people that looked like me and talked like me that meditated, and uh, with all escape routes blocked, I decided to give it a try because I was suffering at the time. And when I heard this teaching, have you noticed that it's hard to be human, that all of us have a hard time some of the time. I was relieved because it wasn't my experience in religious communities, spiritual communities, that we really talked about these things. Talked a lot about the promise, of grace, forgiveness, of the afterlife, you know, a lot of things that seem to be relieving down the road. But the Buddha really leaned in to this truth of dukkha, the first noble truth. And he said, if you're feeling like it's not so easy right now, that's okay. And the word dukkha comes from the etymology of this um, old school word that they used to use to mean when the axle of like a cart, like an ox cart that they used to ride around on, when the axle doesn't quite fit right into the wheel well of the wheel. So that there's this disjointedness. That's a good kind of definition for dukkha. So he's saying that life is like this 90% of the time, you almost feel like it's almost going to be right. It's just right. It's just getting right. And then you hit the bump. And then it's smooth. And then the bump. And then it's smooth. And then the bump. And then it's just like annoying. Stressful is another good definition for dukkha. And so the Buddha goes on to describe or define dukkha in, in examples. He says birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, illness is dukkha, death is dukkha, encountering what is not dear to you is dukkha, not getting what one wants is dukkha. He said having this mind and body process that wants things to be other than the way that they are is dukkha. And so I think when the Buddha's teaching the first noble truth, it's not so much a truth as it is a, a normalization of our experience. The mind and body that you inhabit wants things to be smooth. It wants things to be constant. It wants things to be predictable. It wants things to just be okay. It wants to feel safe in the world. But the world is pervaded by this other thing the Buddha talks about, anicca, impermanence. The world is pervaded by change. Your body changes. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha. Your body changes, he said. 
And your preferences, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, are constantly being rejected by the world around us. And so the Buddha, if you actually scroll down in the sutta to the bottom, he offers instead of just a teaching, have you noticed that there's dukkha in life, this disjointedness and stress, he actually offers a, a task. Because the interesting thing about the Buddha's teachings is that it is a practice-based form of spirituality. You see, in Southeast India at the time the, that the Buddha lived, if you went around and asked anyone what they believe in, they wouldn't understand what you were saying. Because the worldview and the understanding of spirituality wasn't about belief. It was about practice. So if you ask someone what you practice, they would tell you, I do these, you know, the Brahmins would say, I do these devotional practices every day. The Jains would say, we do these uh, rituals every day, these cleansing rituals. And so the same is true in the Buddhist worldview of, of these teachings on the Four Noble Truths is they're not capital T truths that we should believe in. They're practices that we should undertake. So the practice the Buddha gives, and Mikey will go over later around the, the truth of dukkha, is to fully know. Dukkha parinya is the verb form of what he's asking us to do. He is actually asking us to become intimate with the suffering we experience in life. The stress, the dissatisfaction. And this is quite radical because I don't know about you, but anytime I'm suffering, I just want it to fucking go away. I don't want to become intimate with it. I don't even want you to know about it. I don't even want to know about it. As a matter of fact, I'm not even aware of it sometimes for a couple weeks until I can't avoid it any longer. So for the Buddha to say to fully know or to fully, another way we like to talk about this is uh, with the acronym ELSA, like from Frozen, I have a three-year-old daughter, she loves Frozen. And Elsa is the word embrace for the first task. To embrace the difficulty we experience. To turn towards it, and to I think to start is just to be honest about it. You know, sometimes it's, it's a relief even to just say, man, I had a fucking hard day today. You know, or, or, you know, that was a really uncomfortable conversation I had. I feel really upset right now. You know, sometimes it's relieving just to say it out loud, like just to name, like, this sucks, kind of. This is hard. <laughs> and the second truth that the Buddha teaches is that there's a cause of dukkha. There's a reason why life is stressful and we suffer. And the reason is kind of a non-reason. It's kind of this one of these funny things, paradoxes, I guess, that exist in Buddhism. The reason that we suffer is because we want to not suffer. And, and I'll go into detail about what this means. Is because we want things to be different than the way that they are. We want the world to be constant. 
predictable. We want our preferences to be fulfilled. We want the body to not age. We want the job interview to go slowly. We want the promotion to happen. We want the partner of our dreams. Then we get the partner of our dreams and we want to be single again. <laughs> right? We can never quite, even if we get everything we want, we actually can't find happiness in anything. Because our happiness doesn't come from getting what we want, the Buddha says. Our happiness comes from accepting things as they are. Easier said than done. So he says the cause of suffering is actually this to give more of an answer than the non-answer. It's because we want to not suffer. But the, the reason he says that we suffer is because of this word tanha, which means thirst or craving and this other word, upadana, which means clinging. And this is where, like you had said at the beginning, where this kind of theme of addiction comes in. Now, in our culture, there's a lot of stigma around addiction. You know, I'm myself in, in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, Mikey as well, a lot of us in this community are. If you're not, that's okay, you're welcome here because you're still probably addicted and want things to be a certain way. And maybe not in the cultural sense of addicted to a particular substance, you know, but you're definitely addicted to things of being in control. And you live in a world that is not in control. And if you don't think that you are addicted to control, next time you get a flat tire, I hope I see you smiling and saying, of course. <laughs> because oftentimes when world, the world interrupts our, the way that we're moving through it, it feels like this insult. It feels like it shouldn't be happening. The flat tire shouldn't be happening. Not today. I just got that tire fixed. You know, when... Uh, we go through a breakup, or you know, we go through a pandemic, or we go through another election cycle, or we go, we start to zoom out. If you can zoom out from the details, you start to see that the life is the life we live is very much in flux. But there's this craving, there's this longing for it to not be that way. And this is what the Buddha means by tanha. And tanha can take three forms. I won't go deep into all of them, but it's, it's helpful to know. Tanha, in one way, takes the, the form of what's called kamatana, which means craving for sensory input. So one of the things we crave for is pleasant sights and pleasant smells and pleasant tastes and feelings and thoughts. You know, just our nervous system biologically is wired to equate pleasure with safety and pain with threat. And so, you know, the, the foods that are sugary and high in calories are the foods that we needed to sustain energy thousands of years ago. And so our brains have kind of naturally selected for sugary, high-calorie things to taste good. And I'm not saying that it's the food's problem, but it's the brain's problem that we equate pleasure with safety and unpleasantness with threat. 
And so we use a lot of, you know, in therapy language, we would maybe just call this kind of self-medicating, uh, these reactivity, you know, to our daily stressors through sensory things. And you're not alone. I mean, have you seen the world out there? It's just a buffet of sensory things. You know, not even, even if you didn't have a phone and didn't have a computer and didn't ever go to restaurants, but if you just even had a car and drove down the road, all the signs and the advertisements and the, it's just come in, indulge. <laughs> and to be clear here, while I'm talking about kamatana, craving for sense input, the Buddha really distinguished a difference between desire and craving. He said it's not a problem that you experience pleasure things, pleasurable things. He says that it's your relationship to the pleasurable things that you gotta watch out for. So he's not saying this food's bad and that food's good, or this, you know, sex is bad and this thing's good. He's not saying any of that. Because the Buddha wasn't a um, religious leader. The Buddha wasn't a they call it legalist ethics. Buddhism kind of employs more of a uh, psychological ethics, an ethics of the mind, and not so much a, is this thing good or bad or right or wrong, but more of what is my relationship to this thing? Is my relationship becoming obsessive and, and clinging and addictive, and am I using this in a medicating way to numb and to not feel and to regulate my stress? That's what he's talking about commenting on. Does that make sense? And the other two, I'll just say very quickly, are uh, bhavatanha and vibhavatanha, which means craving for existence and craving for non-existence. And these are the craving forms of that really are focused on our sense of self-worth and our identity. Craving for existence is that I'm craving this identity that will be validated and approved of and praised and worthy and seen in a, you know, upheld in kind of a, a, an esteemable way. So we spend a lot of time, I don't know if you have a mind like this, but mine certainly does. It spends a lot of time comparing. It spends a lot of time trying to become the version of myself that I am not You know, instead of starting where I'm at and being where I'm at in life, a lot of times my mind is playing this trick on me that once I get this or get to here or work on this part of myself or get better in this aspect of my life, then I will be happy. And I think that even one of the, the themes I like to pull out in this, it's not the most obvious, but it's one I like to talk about as being around Westerners. You know, I'm a Westerner is that I think our need for self-improvement is oftentimes really tied up in this bhavatana. It's very insidious. Like on one hand, I want to improve. Right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but if we actually have to look closer, the Buddha is teaching something very, I think, really hard. Not hard as in it's not simple, but hard as in it's quite demanding which is when we're trying to improve ourselves, it's almost always colored in some form or fashion with this idea that you're, there's something wrong with you to begin with. 
Does that make sense? And so if you try to get better in your life and you try to work on yourself from a place of feeling like you're defective, the real problem is not that you need to be healthier, stronger, or look different. The problem is that you think you're defective. So we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at, in Buddhist teaching, is this bhavatanha, this craving to become, comes from a place of deficiency, from a place of lack, not good enough. Now, my mind has gotten more cunning over the years. It doesn't so much like speak to me in such simple terms. Like, I rarely have the thought, Andrew, you're, you're a piece of shit anymore. I used to have it all the time. But as I've cleaned up my life, my mind has less evidence to use, you know? So my mind talks to me in different ways, and it says, you know, well, you know, I hope that came off across well. I hope they think you're a competent teacher. I hope that they like you. You know, did you say that right? Or, you know... It's more insidious. It kind of speaks to me in a way where I need to constantly be bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, more competent, more adequate, and just keep driving. So I experienced tana, tanha, bhava tanha, as this drive to become. You ever feel that? And the third is vibhava tanha, which is essentially the opposite. It's a craving to not be. And I think this happens in a lot of subtle ways. It's just like, you know, I don't like this, this part of myself or this way that I am or, you know, we start to kind of take our personality personally. You know, and who we are is just really a culmination of what we've been through plus our genes, you know? So it's like, it's not really actually that personal. And it's not even really that unique, <laughs> you know? We, we, at the end of the day, we have a lot more in common than we have in different. We, you know, we all poop and we all, like, our skin sheds and, you know, like, in general, we're very common. <laughs> but when we just, like, have these, and I get like this, too, it's sometimes just like, I fucking hate this part of myself. I hate this, you know. And it can sometimes materialize, and, and Mikey and I aren't strangers to this either, into suicidal thoughts, even. You know, I just don't want to fucking be here. I don't want to be me. I don't want to exist. And there's some craving in suicidal ideation. I can say this as someone that's experienced it. Again, not as a judgment, but there's this longing to not exist. And what if that place doesn't exist? What if you can't not exist? Just as a hypothetical, because this is the kind of religious Buddhist worldview. You don't need to believe this. But what if there is no escape. What if you only ever have this moment and you have to work through it and you have to learn to open to it and you have to learn to find a path and a way through your suffering, not an escape from your suffering? And I believe that to be true. I mean, that's been my verified experience. I have faith in that through my life is that there's never been a way out. Every time I've tried to take a way out, it's only been a, a you know, a delaying, you know, uh, and a magnifying and a progressing of my suffering over time. <laughs> There's no escape, I'm pretty certain, for myself. There's only ever what I'm dealing with right now and how I'm relating to it. So we want to, you know, find a way out that's not... Not out, but through. And that's the third noble truth. 
there is a way to end suffering. And that way to end suffering is by starting here, investigating your mind, your heart, and what's happening in this moment. Looking keenly with mindfulness. They say that the, I'll summarize the fourth noble truth, which is the way to free ourselves from suffering, the path. So the third noble truth is, uh, if we're following Elsa, the first is embrace. The second is let go of reactivity. The third is see the freedom once you let go of the reactivity. And the fourth is act. Act in terms of, it's act, right? In accordance to the equal path. It's the equal path, yeah. I'm used to embrace, let go, behold, and cultivate. Cultivate the path. So if we're cultivating the path, what is the path through? I just want to summarize it by saying there are these two wings in Buddhism. There's the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And so what is the alternative to running around and craving and clinging and aversion? The alternative is to see clearly when the craving and clinging and aversion arise and to respond wisely to it. To learn how to meet ourselves with compassion in moments of pain instead of aversion and hatred. To see and meet ourselves with moments of renunciation and a willingness to let go during times of greed and times of obsessiveness. Non-attached appreciation when there's pleasure present. And this is the path we're cultivating, is to learn instead of hating pain and craving and clinging after pleasure or status or success, learning to see these parts of ourselves when they arise with more clarity and respond more wisely, respond with compassion to pain and non-attached appreciation to pleasure. And we do this actually through a practice. And the practice we undertake here is the practice the Buddha calls sati, or mindfulness. Mindfulness, and, and Mikey will talk about this more, but mindfulness is this stepping back and observing the experience that's unfolding in the moment, seeing it with clarity. A thought is a thought, a feeling is a feeling. Because when we don't see clearly, the reactivity just arises and we take the bait over and over again. I like to say it's like a conveyor belt, like uh, you ever been on a ski lift that has one of those rope uh, poles on it, like the kitty ski lift, the old school ones. And it's basically, if you haven't been on one, it's this pulley system that pulls you up the hill, it's just a rope. And the, the reactivity that arises, the craving and clinging and aversion, your job is not to get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. That's what your nervous system does. Your job is just to not grab onto it. And so when it arises, you get pissed off or anger arises or, you know, I really need that person's validation or, you know, oh, I had a long day. I'm just going to have one to nine beers. You know, like <laughs> when you notice the arising, we slow down in those moments. And this is what Mikey's going to talk about. And we employ mindfulness. And we say, oh, wow, there it is. No big deal. It's not me. It's not mine. I didn't do that. The mind just was like, have nine beers. You know, yell at that person. 
You ever notice how just impulsive, just how, so our job is not to somehow get rid of that. It's just to not grab hold of it, not get caught up in it. And Mikey's going to talk a little bit about how we do that. Yeah, thank you. Um, in Mahayana Buddhism, there's the, the saying that the Dharma gates are infinite. And uh, I think for me, one of the main Dharma gates that I walk through often is the heart. Right? As Andrew said, we have these two wings, wisdom and compassion. And I feel like my strong wing is, tends to be that compassionate heart. And the way I view these four truths uh, are as a compassion practice. Now that's key. If we're, if we're stepping into the Dharma by acknowledging that there's suffering and pain and difficulty and disjointedness and unreliability, and then how we end suffering over these very common and unavoidable aspects of life is by embracing them, that's the very act of compassion. Embracing suffering with compassion, with love, with nurturing presence. And so we develop a beautiful relationship with pain rather than an aversive aspect of pain. And so we have these acronyms, right? ELSA, embrace suffering, let go of reactivity, see the freedom, and act in accordance to the Eightfold Path. Well, I got another acronym for you, RAIN. Has anybody practiced RAIN here? It's been popularized by, by Tara Brock. Uh, she has a new book out that's like all about RAIN called Radical Compassion. So I want to guide us through a little bit of RAIN. Uh, but before I do that, I want to contextualize it, how it relates to these Four Noble Truths, which the, the first letter of RAIN, R, is recognize. Recognize where the heart aches. Recognize where the difficulty is. Recognize this first noble truth and how it's true in your life today. And I think there's something so beautiful, but just bringing in recognition where suffering is. I think there's something so radical about it. That in my life, you know, I get caught up in feeling bad, a lot of shame about myself. And I love the radical action of embracing what is otherwise considered bad, wrong, unwelcomed. And I know that feeling of being unwelcomed. I don't want to do that to parts of myself. So having that courageous compassion that says, oh, you're worthy of love too. I see you. I recognize that suffering. You're not bad. You're not wrong. Yeah, there you are. So recognizing where your heart aches, where your difficulty is. And then we shift to A, allow. Allow, yes, yes, yes. Come on in, suffering. Come on in, pain. What a radical thing. <laughs> Come on in, suffering. I know there's not many places in this world you'll hear that. I found myself in another grocery line last week with these magazines, somebody meditating, and they're so blissed out. And it said, alleviate anxiety. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's cool. But I wonder if you open it up and says, embrace anxiety, love it. Say yes to anxiety. Because that's what the Buddhist path says. And Peter's here, he, he constantly reminds me of this story. There was a pivotal 
aspect in my life that changed me. And it came from insights of the punk rock scene. I was playing in, or I'd still play in this band. I played in this band. We were, we were doing a couple shows with hardcore uh, legends, Agnostic Front. Anybody know Agnostic Front? Yeah, like they bring a tough crowd. <laughs> so we were opening for them, and uh, as we were playing, just fights started breaking out left and right. And we were like, no, stop, we're all family here, scene unity. And the next song, fight would break out. We have to stop. I'm like, oh no, chill out, it's cool. You know, this is your family. And then, and then like the whole set was a mess because people were fighting. And then the next band got on stage that was on tour with the Agnostic Front. And a fight broke out, first song, and the singer was intense. And he just looked at the fight and said, yes, yes, fight, yes, fight. And then the people fighting like looked up the singer and were like, whoa, I was not expecting that. Not a single fight the rest of the night. <laughs> so this is what happens. Wherever the fight is happening in you, yes, yes, you can be here too. You're worthy of my love. Bringing in that loving heart. You know, sometimes I like to look at these internal fights, these anxieties, these, these hurtful things inside of me as a child. And in the Metta Sutta, it talks about loving kindness as motherly love, as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a balanced heart shall I cherish all living beings. And so whatever is alive in you, cherish it like it's a child. You know, as a child is running around in the playground and falls down and bumps his leg. Oh, poor child. Poor child. So anything inside of you that has a bump on the leg. Oh, poor child. The self-hatred. Oh, you too. You too, self-hatred. I see. You've got a bump on your head. Self-hatred. Okay. You're, you can come on in. Come on in, self-hatred. You're worthy of my love, too. And so we recognize and allow. And then we begin to investigate. That's the I brain, investigation. And we can watch how these visiting tendencies of the heart and the mind show up. And this brings us into very insightful ways of, of practicing. Sometimes in meditation, we think, oh, I'll meditate when that hateful thought goes away. Oh, I'll meditate when I'm not addicted anymore. But that, that addiction's in the way. That's, that self-hatred's in the way, that shame's in the way, that judgment's in the way. In this practice, we notice whatever's in the way is the way. The insight comes from the very thing we think is in the way. So welcome, let's see it. What is that? Self-judgment. Okay, let's investigate self-judgment. How does it show up in the body? Does it have a certain energy in the body? Does it have pressure? Does it have a, 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 an impulse to it? How does it show up in the mind? Does it have a memory? Does it have a plan, past and future? Does it have a thought process? Does it have a belief system? Investigate that too. So becoming in a way to observe these painful tendencies. And then we gain insight through that. So it's like, I love in the Buddhist practice that sometimes we talk about there's, there's no separation between what's sacred and what's profane. So if your mind is saying profane things to you, disgusting things to you, terrible things to you, that's actually the spiritual practice we're looking at. So investigating what may be considered profane inside of you and bring love and curiosity towards that. Because that's where the freedom lies. When we're free to be with these things in a beautiful relationship, and even if we judge them as profane, bad, or evil, 
Yes. You can be here too. And then when we open up to it in an intimate way, we bring in the N. And a couple different teachers teach this N, this last of the acronym, in different ways. I like you know the more heartfelt way, which is nurture. Sometimes these tendencies need something. Self-judgment may, may, may need something. Self-hatred, shame, they may need something. Most of the time, for me, it's just a, you know, a sweet acknowledgement of loving kindness. You'd be at ease. Or, I love you just the way you are. Just a, you know, just a, a acknowledgement of a loving heart. Maybe it's uh, not as sweet. You know, some of y'all may be the more heady types of dharma, and it's just like, yo, what's up? I see you. That's a nurturing enough. Sometimes it calls for the imagination to play around. Visualizing it as a child, like I said, hugging it, holding it. Yeah, yeah, judgment. I got you, right here. And then sometimes there's a call to action. Maybe it's asking you, eh, you know, maybe maybe it's time to forgive. Maybe it's time to go have that conversation with somebody. Maybe uh, I need you to go do this for me. Right? A response, not reactivity, but a response. And they need that too. So that a nurturing way of not necessarily being complacent in these things. Sometimes they want you to do something. So recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. So I'll guide you through it. Sound good? So finding a way to sit that is easeful, gentle, of all at the same time, being alert. Like I said, as we investigate, we'll be investigating the body, so bringing in some awareness into the body and how you hold this body. And if it feels right, maybe just allowing the eyes to close. And if that doesn't feel safe, just having your eyes open, a soft gaze in front of you is totally suitable. Maybe giving ourselves a couple soothing deep in and out breaths. Just calming the body and the mind. Softening any points of tension held within the body. Communicating safety into the body. By softening the face. Allowing the shoulders to rest. softening the belly. Feeling into the legs and the feet. Just resting in this body, resting in the breath. Feeling this body breathing all on its own. It can be quite beautiful how it takes care of itself. 
And now I invite you to bring your awareness further inward towards the heart. Just feeling into the sweetness of the heart. Maybe even envisioning that you're breathing in and out from this heart space. It's touching into this beautiful quality of compassion. A willingness to embrace suffering. To bring love to what might be felt as unlovable. It may be helpful to bring in a sense of touch. Maybe putting your hands on your heart, holding and caressing the heart. Just allowing the heart to be held, while at the same time being the one that's holding this heart, caressing the heart. this open heart, we can shift into this RAIN practice, starting with the R of recognize. Recognize where this heart aches. What difficulty has been arising in your life? Whether that difficulty happened today, a week ago, a year ago, opening up the heart to this one difficulty. Just breathing in and breathing out, just recognizing the presence of this difficulty. helpful just to use one or two words to label it, recognizing the difficulty. So breathing in and breathing out as we recognize this pain, this difficulty, this suffering, the radical action of compassion allows it to be here. Resting in this A, allowing, saying yes silently towards this pain, towards this difficulty. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome. Welcoming it in. Open arms, come on in pain, come on in difficulty, no longer being estranged from our own hearts. There's only what's loved and what's longing to be loved. So have an understanding that this difficulty is longing for your love. 
no longer exiling or excluding. Yes, come on in, pain. to that too. Avoiding. Yeah, there you are, avoiding. The mind that wants to fix and control this pain. Yes, there you are too. the body. Does this pain and difficulty live anywhere within your body? Do you feel any pressures, any impulses, any activities related to this compassion towards the pain? this pain investigated? Does it show up anywhere in the mind? Does it have a memory connected to it? Does it have any future fears or worries connected to it? for revenge. Any belief systems or worldviews around it. Mm 
Does it have any emotions? So investigating how this pain manifests itself within the mind, the body, and the heart. the deal as we recognize, allow, and investigate this pain, this difficulty, this suffering. Let's welcome it with a nurturing heart, this motherly love of metta. And we're just offering it some silent phrases. I'm here for you. I'll love you no matter what. Maybe at ease. I'm here for you. You're worthy of love. Exploring if it needs to hear anything. with a sense of imagination maybe giving it a mental hug hugging our own pain holding our own pain caressing our own pain within our own minds just imagining the most nurturing gentle thing we can do towards this pain by listening to this pain, asking it if it needs anything. Maybe it wants you to do something in your own life. You need something from me, pain.
So just breathing in and breathing out, feeling into the body. Recognize, allow, investigate, and nurturing pain. When the Buddha first spoke to new meditators, he first spoke of gratitude, of the generosity of the Sangha. So what a generous act this is. Generous towards yourself, embracing pain. Generous towards people around you, so you don't end up reacting in harm. So just taking time to reflect on the goodness of this sweet, generous act of compassion towards yourself. Mm. All right, we'll end with the sound of the bell.